1: To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc.
0: Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Susan O'Million on the show with me today. Uh, Susan, can you just really quickly just introduce yourself to my audience and uh, we'll, we'll dive into your story a little bit, but just give them a little bit of context about the the current nature of what you do and what you've been working on uh, recently.
2: Okay. Um, So I am an attorney. I don't currently practice in a conventional way, but that's my background. So currently what I do is work with uh, uh, mostly women survivors, um, domestic violence, sexual assault, Um, uh, different kinds of abuse. Sometimes I have women who have been sexually harassed at work and I've devised a workshop that I call My Avenging Angel Workshops. And I believe one of the things that helps people in the process of moving on after abuse is the idea that living well is our best revenge. And the women really like that. Um, So I've devised a workshop, it's really trying to move women beyond even the survivor place. So my mission is to work uh, on the journey from victim to survivor to thriver. And I've had my own personal journeys um, that sort of have uh, spearheaded this, but I've been in this movement for many years. And I think one of the things, the the women's movement and certainly the um, uh, better women's movement and the sexual assault movement Um, sort of missed was that it's important to get women out and get women safe, but it's also important to help them move on. And Mm -hmm. that healing process is what I'm really interested in and what I've been working on for the last 20 years.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, so the conversation about sexual violence against women specifically has become, I mean, it's everyday discussion now with the the Mm -hmm. Me Too movement. It's, it's kind of, you know, thrust into the forefront. um, And you know, somewhat controversially. So I think it revealed a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, feelings people have toward women and the responses to people coming forward and and sharing their story. Um, but I mean, you've been, you've been covering this since long before it was quote unquote cool to talk about it. I mean, you were talking about it back in the seventies, uh, when you started a, a rape crisis center. Um, can you talk about what got you started on that journey and kind of what the response during that time period where it was, a lot. I mean, it was a lot less of a discussion, if there was any discussion at all, uh, kind of how that got started.
2: Well, probably the thing that got me involved the most, and I and I don't know exactly. I have I never had any of these personal experiences. Even my parents were kind of worried about it in the beginning. Like, why are you doing this? Um, I think it was the women's movement, and you have to go back to the. Um, I was in. I was in college. I started college in uh, the late '60s, '69. Just um, I went to a two-year. I went to a community college for the first two years, and then in '69 I went to the University of Michigan, which is a very large school in in in, in Michigan where I was born and raised. And um, the women's movement at the time was just beginning to understand. Um, the personal was political. There were people like Gloria Steinem. We were all just in this little, this, you know, little, um, uh, incubator of information, and um, we were all women who were were getting career, we're getting really good education. Uh, we were getting we were going to get jobs. I wanted to be a journalist at the time. I I was I was doing journalism, and I knew that when I went out to get a job for a job interview, they weren't asking me if I had a degree from the University of Michigan. They were asking me how fast I could type. And I, w- I'm a terrible typist. I have no hand-eye coordination, so this is not my skill. Um, and so. I think we all sort of got awoken to this idea that as women, there was something we needed to change. And I was certainly not in the forefront of that radical change, but at that time there's a lot of stuff going on on that campus in particular, because that was the focus of a lot of the anti-war efforts. So, and in the anti-war movement, many women realized that there was still a lot of misogyny. So the, the movement into the women's movement. So I really came into the women's movement first and more around women's equality. and when you get married, you don't have to take your husband's name and maybe you don't really have to have children. That may not be a choice for you but in the, how do you sort of do this career thing? And and I think in that conversation, that lifting up of the idea that we could, we as women had a lot of work to do, that other other topics started expanding. So um, I actually was very involved with the National Organization for Women. I was We were doing consciousness raising groups. It's the first time that I really sat with women and talked about our experiences. And one of the things I think about in my life, I was more, in, and I shouldn't say this because giving away my age, but I was born in 1949. So the first 10 years of my life was in the 1950s, which mm-hmm. was a very, um, you know, women were, were very subordinate and, and subjugated in that, that time. It was, you know, women, you know, Ozzy and Harriet, women were get married and have babies and, 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 and forget about a career, you're going to be a housewife. Um, And then I, in the second 10 years of my life, I was in the sixties and seventies where everything was like wild and crazy with sex, drugs and rock and roll. And so I still have that feeling I have one foot in one generation and (laughs) one foot in the other, but that the second generation is really where I thought, this is the work that I want to do. I also wanted to go to law school from a very, very young age, but I didn't know any women lawyers. There were no women lawyers um, around. And so slowly I got the idea. I was at first I was going to coming out of the 50s. I was going to marry a lawyer. Mm. That would, you know, that would get me where I wanted to go. Um, but that I didn't do that. So I thought I have to go to law school. And that was another big step for me. About that time, going back to the sexual assault um, and also the domestic violence movement, people started, women started having in basements of churches uh, what they called the rape, um, the speakouts, And they had women come in and start telling their stories. Hmm. Not so much domestic violence, but definitely sexual assault. And I was reading about that. Those are people that I admired, um, people who were um, really pushing the issue out. And so when I started um, uh, working on this issue, uh, with a couple of friends who were social workers, I had graduated and I started doing some journalism. I actually was working for a while as a, the women's editor of a newspaper, which was shows you how long ago that was. Mm-hmm. And, and I started writing even in in that moment started writing about other stories about women. My editor who was a woman wasn't happy with me. She kept saying to me, where are these radical people, you know, in our community? Why are they right. talking about not changing their name when they got married? And I'm like, well, they're they're living right down the street here. So that just really, and then when I got to law school, I really began to realize that. And one of the shining moments of my law school, which was difficult to get people to focus on women's law there, is that I remember very distinctly reading a law case about a a woman attorney who was um, suing on behalf of a man to deal with sex discrimination in the Social Security Administration. And years later, I figured out that was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, wow. so then I got really inspired that there are women lawyers who were doing this, taking out these cases. And I think I started the sexual assault crisis service with a couple of friends in the social work area while I was still in law school. And then, um, and then when I got out of law school, I decided to take a job at a legal aid service, legal aid, um, uh, <clears throat> society in another part of Michigan and the domestic violence shelter had just opened up that year. And so with some of the domestic violence shelter workers who were all women who were just trying to figure out what to do here, um, as, the, as an attorney doing family law, I, I sort of teamed up with the um, women who were the uh, victim advocates and we started doing, really started educating the um, judges and other attorneys about um and i think michigan at that time had just passed the restraining order law mm-hmm. and so we were going to court in asking the judges to sign these restraining orders and the judges are like is this like something i can do i mean they didn't even know anything about mm-hmm. it um and so that just it, it was kind of like a you know when the snowball is rolling down the hill and it just keeps picking up more right. and more steam Um, And then I eventually came here to Connecticut to to work. I wanted to work for a woman's public interest law firm. I wanted to focus on sex discrimination law. Uh, Sexual harassment was just coming on the horizon and started doing a lot of education and writing about that. That's when I wrote my first book actually. Um, So I think, you know, that was interesting, the question you asked me, you have to kind of see it as it was rolling out. And so when we hit the Me Too movement, it's like, wow, I never dreamed we'd have conversations across all kinds of spectrums about this issue. Um, I mean, I I was hoping for that. But the idea back in the early 60s is that we're just going to try to figure out the little pieces here and see if we can find a few, you know, I used to say, if we could find five people to sit in a room that knew something about domestic violence, it was a good day.
0: Um,
2: And now we've got police talking about it and judges talking about it. And, you know, and and Mm. now we got the pandemic talking about it. So I think that's really, um, the process has been one where there's been more and more recognition that these are people, these victims are people that need to be dealt with and our systems need, to provide that help.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it definitely is a very interesting perspective. I mean, coming it's, it's ironic now because there's so many people nostalgic for the 1950s, uh, particularly a lot of, uh, a lot of men uh, who are leading these conservative movements are very nostalgic about the 1950s about, you know, these kind of submissive wives in a very peaceful neighborhood, you know, majority white neighborhood, you know, it's a very odd time uh, to be, to have this sense of nostalgia and to say that that was the time America was at its best when clearly there was this underground problem um, that we see now. I mean, it it was stretching far and wide and you were seeing that on the ground floor, kind of trying to talk with people and, and deal with people at the center in these meetings, like you were seeing it up close and personal. Um, would you say that uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but, when I was reading about you being, you know, a lawyer in the eighties talking about battered women, you know, dealing with divorce, you know, I just, even now there's so much stigma around the side of the woman. Like there's so much, there's so much credit given to men automatically, just in the way that society's coded to deal with male yeah. and female. We we see that with sexual abuse as well. We see, you know, well, was she promiscuous? Did she do this? We, all of these right. um, I'm, I'm currently reading a book right now. Um. By Dr. Jessica Taylor, why women are blamed for everything, and she talks about, you know, um, all of the different myths around rape and and uh, the way that we excuse sexual violence. But I can't imagine in the '80s a time, you know, the more you go back, the more archaic our views of women and gender and sexuality is. Um, ha- do you feel like there's been real progress in changing our minds about how we view sexual violence? I know the conversation's gotten bigger, but would you say it's actually been helpful? Do you think it's actually um, helped us have like real change in the way we view these kind of cases?
2: Um, That's a real hard question to answer. It depends on from what perspective Mm. you see it. Um, I think there's been, like I said before, there's been, I can now get more than five people in a room who at least understand this issue. And it took us years to get police to talk about it. Um, I think one of the things that has really helped, um, and I, I use the word helped, um, you know, sort of loosely, um, I think there's been more focus, at least in the institutions like mental health and, and health, um, area around trauma-informed care around uh, talking about trauma. Mm. Um, and I think that is a helpful conversation. Not to deny that we have misogyny and patriarchy underneath all of this. Um, and and racism and, you know, all the isms. Um, but I think that we, if to elevate it a bit, that to understand that trauma has been, and this is interesting in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, they're talking about institutional um, trauma, um, historic trauma, generational trauma. Um, and the idea that we're starting to see it, I should say we, some of us who are a little more highly, um, Uh, highly placed, I guess, Um, I think that's the conversation that's pushed this out a little bit. I, I do believe there are still a lot of women blaming about it. But I think for many people, particularly in the helping fields, that's no longer the conversation. I think it's a personal conversation between you and your therapist. I still get women who tell me that their therapists, sometimes even women therapists, will say to them, "Well, you know, you're to blame for all this," and mm-hmm. so it's still it's still sort of there, um, and they're trying to get them to see that there's some things they do that they've been they've been institutionally been doing or they've been taught to do like um, uh, like people pleasing, which is one of the things, but. I think it was really clear to me that we really haven't solved this problem for about 15 years um, after, after my niece was murdered, I started doing better intervention programs. I started working with men and um, mostly young men in their twenties, thirties, sometimes a little older who've been arrested for low levels of domestic violence, um, pushing and shoving you know, um, not, not attempted murder or whatever. But um, I remember I had this young man come in, he he was very young and and the first, I usually asked in the group, you know, why did you, uh, why are you here? And he said, well, you know, I got arrested for, you know, uh, um, uh, pushing and shoving my girlfriend and, you know, and he said, but I, I really shouldn't be here. And I said, why? And he, he said, um, I really thought, she, you know, I thought she would submit, be submissive. I thought she would submit to what I wanted. Hmm. And I said to him, how, how old are you? <laughs> Cause I'm thinking I'm talking to somebody from the 16th century, you know, right. and he was only 19 and the guys in the group were like, Oh boy, you know, <laughs> don't ta- don't talk about submission to her. But I, I realized that it wasn't necessarily about that. We had changed everything. Yeah. We had changed something, but there were still people that were in these, these uh, uh, thought um, patterns and I think he genuinely did not know um, that uh, in a relationship you had a compromise so there you know he was just young but the idea that there's still this this I, I guess the word is patriarchy misogyny but but in some cases, we still haven't figured out what the relationship should be between men and women, and and it also sort of goes into if you if and I've worked with some gay male couples or uh, or lesbian couples. It also goes into those relationships. Mm-hmm. So I think if we start to think about it as this is a trauma history, and that we all you know there are those who create tra- trauma uh, situations, and there are those who help to. But I think we're still we still are as a society trying to figure out what is this trauma? How does it impact people? And what do we do about it? Mm. And I thought that the answer might be to get to the people who are causing the trauma. That's true. But I also think that in working with the people who've been traumatized, that we still really haven't figured out how to sort all this out. Um, You know, and, and when I asked the guys who were in my, in most cases in my, Offender program uh, groups, what their childhood was like. They would usually tell me that there was domestic violence or child abuse going on. Yeah. So then we get back to: is this a learned behavior? Is this something else? Or is it learned in a in a personal setting? And then the um, all the you know the isms of the world get thrown on top of it. Um, all the misogyny and patriarchy. Or are we all just trying to struggle through to figure out what are these relationships and how do we treat each other? I think that men are socialized and women are socialized in such a way that we have to go against our socialization Mm. to be good people. And Mm. that seems a little crazy. Like, why are we socializing people this way socializing women to be a little bit more meek and a little bit more you know standoffish and and how do women deal with the biology that they are nurturers but also they can be strong women and how do men deal with the biology that they are strong people but they all can, can be gentle and I don't think we figured that out yet maybe that's one of the keys that would you know how we are socialized Um, and when I started doing this and I had this, this conversation in my offender groups, they're like, well, what's socialization, you know, and how does that work? And a lot of my guys had been raised in, um, on, in street gangs. So they had a whole violence behind them. Um, and kind of that macho kind of thing. So don't you think that men are socialized in kind of a crazy way? and that women are socialized in kind of a crazy way. And then we have to go against the socialization sometimes.
0: Right. Well, that that's something that um, I had mentioned in that book and I actually have it on my desk. That's why I keep thinking about it, but I, I'm reading through it right now. And and the idea of, you know, I mean, women being blamed, you see victim blaming happen in the Me Too movement a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the the thesis of the book is that we're socialized to Believe these myths about, specifically about uh, rape and, and abuse, that you know we we tend to fault on fault the victim. We tend to side with the abuser, and a lot of it just coming from you know the way that we were taught to view men and women. She talks about, um, I just had the page here, but she talks about like different forms of sexism. So like even going into Um, she mentions benevolent sexism where sexism appears positive or traditional, but it patronizes women to make them weaker or helpless. Um, She talks about uh, uh, this is, this is really interesting. This is one thing I wanted to bring up. This has been recognized that some of traditional gender role characteristics of femininity are contradictory. Women are expected to be submissive and passive in sex, and yet simultaneously expected to control and preserve sexual activity. They're socialized to be emotional, nurturing and submissive to men, but also responsible for limiting, causing and controlling men's sexual behaviors. And um, and, and even it dives into what, what kind of blew my mind is the way that we talk about sexual assault traditionally, and even before the me too movement, when we talk about it is don't go out you know, alone at night, don't go to these kind of parties. Don't drink too much alcohol. Right. All of our, all of our preventative methods were on the side of the victim. And so right. when someone is assaulted, what they tend to think is if I behave differently, they're already programmed that right. I did something wrong. I missed one of those steps. And uh, one last quote that I just saw the other day, it was men tend to use rape myths to excuse or minimize sexual violence, but women tend to use rape myths to deny their personal vulnerability. So there's women want to believe when they hear a story of a, of a horrible rape that happens across town, they want to believe, oh, I wouldn't have gone to that part of town. I wouldn't have drank that much, but right. all of the, all that does is negate the responsibility of the abuser to not act in an abusive way. Right. But our, our campaigns are always centered around, you know, why the victim did something wrong.
2: Right. I think in the, in the battered women's movement, the question has always been, and there's some really good men who are articulating this, um, is that, you know, the question is, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she mm, leave? And the yeah. question is never like, why does he do that?
0: You know? Right. Right. <laughs> I mean,
2: um, you know, in the child welfare um, uh, institutions for many, many years, if there was a domestic violence going on between the, the mother and father and the children were exposed, they would pull the children or or punish the mother. They would never go after the guy. You know, yeah. even if he had a restraining order, they would no go, never go enforce this restraining order and get him out of the house. Yeah. So there is this real. Yeah, there's a real sense that we haven't figured out. Um, and when you put that into the institutions, like the police have the power, yeah. um, you know, until recently, um, and well, in the 80s, I think it was, there's a lawsuit here in Connecticut, that, you know, um, where a woman almost was killed because she, the police wouldn't arrest her husband who was beating her while the police were there. Mm. Um that mandated, you know, arrest um, here in here in Connecticut, and then around around the country. Um, we ha- really haven't figured out what the institutions that are supposed to protect us are supposed to do. And the women I know who have uh, police officers mm-hmm. as husbands, um, and they are extremely extremely violent with their wives. Um, they will tell you in a minute. You know, the institution of the police uh, institutions, or the or the, the paramilitariness of Police institutions or the military really enforce that. So I think we're still struggling with what is that, you know. And, and I guess this is an exercise that I've done regularly with the guys in my offender groups was, you know, what is a real man, uh, mm. what, and and what's the man box you got yourself stuck into, um, and and it's not serving you because because you aren't strong, you know, independent. Um, you know, you're, you have emotional, they used to say to me, you know, well, why are women so emotional? You know, they have too many emotions. And I'm like, well, no, they have the same amount of emotions that you do. You've been socialized not to show those emotions except for anger. Hmm. And you're angry when you're happy and you're angry and you're sad and you're angry and you're confused. And that's the emotion you were allowed to show. And that will usually get you arrested in some situations. Um, But so but you were socialized that way. And I still get men who tell me that they were socialized that boys don't cry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To this day. And and you hit on that too. Like you hit on the idea of, you know, people even still to this day, I I look at, I look at, uh, you know, law enforcement, you know, I mean, the, the statistics are shocking. And I, I, I just watched a documentary recently about, you know, the rape kit backlog and which is a, which is a massive problem on its own. And the amount of cases that actually get dealt with by police that actually get investigated is shockingly low. Um, but even beyond that, I mean, you touched on the idea of, you know, people who are literally police officers who are beating their wives or, or um, I look at religious context, pastors mm-hmm. who are abusing their children or, or right. abusing someone in the church. Um, and I think that really speaks to when you look at the part of the, the man side, speaking specifically to male abusers what I see a lot of times is the people who are abusive are in these positions of some kind of public power. So like police officer, pastor, coach, a teacher, and that's what they're kind of using to, to, you know, enact these abuses on their, on their victims. And no
2: one believes it because they have this public persona. He's a nice guy. He's so brilliant. You know, he's a great lawyer. Why would he be, you know, you you can't accuse him of that.
0: Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a perfect cover and it yeah. also I think it speaks to the fact that there's certain people drawn to those kind of positions because of that that type of power. Yes. Um and and well, we're seeing say-
2: that in the I'm excuse me. We're yeah. seeing that in some of in the uh George Floyd some of the uh the really egregious uh, not that they aren't all egregious but um the ones that have been most publicly um, shown about the kind of men, uh, men that, um, had even had, uh, brutality cases brought against them and they're still in the police force. Right. Um, and the ability to keep to that institution sort of keeps it going, yeah. um, for better or worse.
0: Right. And I think that, I think that's, you mentioned that man box that you get stuck in. I think, mm-hmm. I think for most, especially religious context, the idea of that submission and I'm the head of this i'm I'm the one who is bringing law and order authority, you know um, dominion over this person or this group or this you know whatever person you want to put into that blank there I think that plays a huge role in it. I think it's that power structure you know I think it's that it's that you know how do I how do I lead? And, and like you said, when men are only taught to express one emotion, you get angry leaders, you get aggressive leaders, you don't get, you know, empathy, you don't get sympathy. Um, And again, yeah, we're in, you know, when you look back and start rolling back all the, all the stuff around that you're looking at, what were they taught in Sunday school? What were they taught by their parents? You know, um, we, we used to have a, we used to have a guy come to our church um, when I was growing up and my mom, my mom absolutely hated when he would come. Um, but he would always talk about his relationship with his dad and he would, he would joke about it, but he would say, you know, my dad would, you know, throw me through walls. My dad would, you know, beat me my dad, um, you know, timeout was how long I was unconscious. You've probably heard jokes like that from, from guys and, and, you know, but he would always say like, you know, I'm not saying that's okay, but look how I turned out. I turned out fine. And It was clear he didn't. It was clear that that's not normal. That's not okay. And um, but again, I think we're so programmed to just say like, "Oh, it's fine. That's normal. That's what my dad did. That's what his dad did." And you know, this is really the first real, I feel, generational break where there's some kind of change in the way men at larger start to have these discussions. But there's still plenty more to do. I mean.
2: I, I think one thing that men have done in in the current generations uh, men who are in their 20s and 30s is they've become much more engaged in the parenting role
0: yeah
2: um, um, My father worked 10 hour days seven days a week he had one day off every other week. Um, he was engaged but I can't say that he was um, he was present in our life all the time you know. Um, I look at my yeah, my my nieces and nephews who have relationships with children. Whole different kind of parenting. I mean, they're really engaged, and you see a lot more men doing that. Um, although there are some men who say, "Why is he doing that? Why you know? Why would yeah, he change right. the diaper? You know, <laughs> um, you know." It's it's just interesting to me that there are men who are actually just really don't want to be in that box, mm-hmm. and it's really you have to really work hard to. Uh, maintain I don't know some kind of masculinity at the same time there's another part yeah you know I think it's been interesting um, uh, the, the discussions about empathy in our society um, mm-hmm. particularly among the leaders who um, we no longer have soon and the new ones um, yeah empathy is you know it to to guys that's sort of like why would you be nice to that person you know and then and then that you sort of talk about I mean I I had to teach empathy in my offender classes Mm. I mean it was really interesting I had to start with like Okay, now when you know when your friend's mother dies, you um, you feel sorry, right? That's sympathy. Okay, and then you know if you if somebody does does really something really bad to you and you forgive them, that's forgiveness. But there's something in between called empathy. And mm. and the only way I could sort of get them to start thinking about it—not that they didn't have an instinct about it, but had been so trounced down—was to say, okay understanding is the is the middle ground. And that's called standing in somebody's shoes, Hmm. and to have them start to think about that. And sometimes they'd actually act in a way that was empathetic, but they didn't know it. So we had to identify it like that time when your girlfriend, you know, she was really upset because her mother was sick and you you know took care of her and you made dinner that night and you took care of the kids that was empathy oh okay that's great so right. just even you know i don't know if you can teach it but i don't know that we don't have it i just don't, i think that men are socialized once again to not go there yeah. uh, or if it's they do they can sit, yeah they see it's weak yeah. you know yeah. i don't want to be weak uh, or or they'll say to me, you know, if I tell her exactly how I feel, she's going to use that against me. I yeah. said, well, that's probably a possibility. But on the other hand, you could have a really interesting conversation with her
0: right. and
2: really connect. Right. Um, so that's what we don't do, not only for men, but also for women, that women really aren't taught to be assertive. Um, A lot of women, I used to do groups with women who actually have been arrested for domestic violence. They were usually Mm. the victim, but what they would do is they would act aggressively in their defense and then that would get them arrested. And Mm. so then we'd have to talk about, you know, what's aggression and what's being assertive, standing up for yourself, but not violating the rights of somebody else is assertive. Aggressive is just going for it. And who cares who gets hurt? As long as you get what you want. Um, and, and women aren't taught to be, they're either taught to be passive or aggressive Assertive is not more young women are doing that. You know, it's interesting to talk to young women these days because they have a a much stronger sense of themselves, but they also don't, they also see the world is not quite with them yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, when I first was an attorney you know, um, coming out of law school and you know, trying to get a job, there were still many kinds of law that were, that were closed to women. Mostly family law was open. Um, mm-hmm. Criminal defense work was not considered what women should do. Um, and but you'll see more and more women in that place. Uh, the new vice president, Kamala was a prosecutor. That was not a role women played. Um, because of those ideas that women were, you know, either not aggressive enough or, um, um, you know, couldn't do the job or they'd be exposed to these terrible things. We still haven't figured. So we've sort of gotten rid of the, maybe the outside worst examples of patriarchy, but we're now coming into what is it that, um, is it, you know, what's the roles of men and women and can in fact there be, um, biological and gender differences, um, you know, but they can be shared in, in a human across the way, across the board. Right. So it doesn't, uh, it's, so then if men respect women, and women understand that that respect is there, then could we no longer have sexual assault or domestic violence? I don't
0: know. No, right. that's an interesting question right now, right? Is we've got this conversation going, we've got the awareness and the exposure. I would say, I would say that's been the, the 2010s has been a late 2010s has been like worldwide exposure to this, um, or at least national exposure to this. Um, I guess as you, as you're looking at this, you're sitting here, you're, you're doing these, these classes, these courses with, with people you're, you've worked with both, you know, uh, offenders and people who've been on the receiving end of these offenses. Uh, what would you like to see happen? Like if you're sitting here in the next, you know, over the next five, 10 years, and you're saying, you know, I think for this conversation, this exposure not to be wasted, we have to start taking the conversation in, you know, this direction. What would that be? Like if you could steer the, the national conversation, where would you like to steer it over the next maybe five, 10 years?
2: Well, I've been on this kick lately about the continuum of care, um, which to me means that we don't have enough pieces in place to, well, there's. I think there's two parts to that. One is what will we do to stop the violence and what can we do with the violence that we can't stop? How do we get people moving through it more quickly so they don't have long-term traumatic experiences? And I have some women in my group who are in their 70s and 80s uh, age-wise and I do not, the impact, the long-term impact of what I call what's now called poly victimization. They've had a number of victimizations. Hmm. They may come in my group talking about domestic violence in their uh, current relationship. But if you ask them a few questions, you find out that there was things going on in their childhood um, or in other relationships. So um, those people are going to have long term if we can, if we can prevent um, if we can, if we can address the trauma in the moment and be more clear about what are some of the ways to help these people move through it, that'd be great. I think that's then that's prevention because they don't go back to an abusive relationship. I have women have, who are clear, they're not going back. They know the warning signs, the, the, uh, that's a prevention for them as victims. But then the issue is um, how do we deal with the people who are offending? Um, some of it's the way that I, we start about socialization. What's been interesting in the um, uh, coming out of the Black Lives Matter, the defund the police, which I think I agree is kind of a dumb word, but the idea that we do some kind of criminal justice reform. Yeah. I think what's wrong, one of the things that could, could really change the, the victimization movement is that we take it out of the criminal justice context. Most of the people that I work with have, have come through a criminal case of some way, a child, a sexual assault, child abuse, although usually that's through uh, child welfare and domestic violence is still pretty much stuck in the uh, criminal justice where, where you know, they get arrested or not. I think the shift should go into a public health perspective And I've met a number of young people, mostly women who have decided to, who really wanna work on sexual assault and domestic violence, who decided to get public health degrees. And to put this into a public health perspective, this is a major public health issue. And how do we get at public health issues much differently than the criminal? Because in the criminal, it's like punish the offender and make sure he he or she doesn't hurt somebody again. In the public health, it's like, how do we get at, um, they call it primary prevention and secondary prevention, and how do we, how do we get bystanders more informed? How, you know, the bystander movement. If you see somebody, you see something, you do something. So I think in the public health perspective, it, uh, and I don't know a whole lot about public health, but it seems to make sense to me that um, uh, I know when I was working, I worked both in Massachusetts and in Connecticut doing offender groups. And in Massachusetts, it was under the public health department. And it mm. had a kind of a different feel to it, the way we were working with the guys, even though a lot of them were on probation, we actually had voluntary programs where the guys could come in voluntarily to these groups. Mm. In, in in the criminal justice, it was mandated, you, you had to be arrested first before you could come into a group. So I don't know if that's like the answer for anything, but it's certainly a different focus. And um, with all the pandemic, you know, it's a lot, people are kind of noticing the public health function. Isn't that interesting? That public Hmm. health thing. (laughs) And usually public health, um, as I understand it, is at a local level. So you're really beginning to get to the people that, um, who who would not come forward to the police. You know, there's so many women who won't report, or if they do report, they regret it. Because yeah. um, they're putting themselves into this whole victim blaming thing. But in a public health perspective, it's like talking to your doctor or to the school nurse about something and mm. and he or she's going to help you. So I, th- I think we're going to see a movement towards that. I, it's already moving a bit. Um, It'd be interesting to see what the Biden administration might do because Joe Biden was so active when he was the vice president under President Obama uh, on violence against women. It'd be interesting to see what the violence against women authorization will look like, where the funding is going to go. Right now, the funding has been going in general to victim services, mostly through Uh, prosecutor's offices and crisis intervention, somewhat to colleges where a lot of this stuff really needs to be dealt with. Um, My niece was murdered on a campus, a college campus, and there was no education going on there at all. So the idea that we might make a little bit of a, I think it's already happening, but I don't think it's been... um, Funded that way, yeah, and um, that would take it out of institutions like churches and police's and police's and and courts a bit. Although it's appropriate to be there if that right. offender needs to be prosecuted to stop the to be incentivized to stop. But yeah. is that the is that the best way to deal with trauma?
0: Right, and well, I think what you're getting at too is the um, the way that we deal with this has been reactive. Like it's been, how do we treat it once it happens? And I mean, at that point for all intents and purposes, I mean, obviously there's work to be done in recovery. There's things that, that can be done, but at that point it's too late. the, the crime happened The the damage was done and it, and you can never go back to a complete reset. Like this is how things were before it took place. I think it's the same way our healthcare system has functioned in the country for so long has been when someone gets very, very sick, then they have to be treated, but we're spending way more money doing that than if we prevent preventative treatments are much cheaper. Um, I was just listening to a, to a doctor talking through that Mm -hmm. exact thing. He was saying, we wait till someone has the heart attack. It's so much cheaper to do preventative care, take steps diet, like all of that is going to save thousands hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars long-term. Um, but but with with abuse cases, most pastors are calling. I get calls from pastors asking for resources and things. I'm getting calls after something happens or after they find out some, something happened, that's when they're calling and laying out a process. And instead what people should be doing is investing time and money and resources into one part of sex education, which you know, part of that, you know, just existing well, is helpful. That's a hot topic. For <laughs> but, <the> churches, yeah, <laughs> right. But I mean, but I mean, look at sex education. It's like, I think that there needs to, at least on some level, there needs to be sex education within all environments with 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 teenagers, with mm-hmm. with younger yeah. kids, to be able to at least identify consent. What is what is it? What is a solid no? Like, what did you know? I I was reading um I was reading that book last night and it was saying you know it was sixty seven percent or something of a of a polled group of men and women thought that um you know waking up to sexual intercourse was normal that it was not assault and so there's a lot of things like that where you know I look at my background like I I I grew up in a very you know sheltered kind of Christian background and there were things there were basic things about sex that were never talked about until a few weeks before you get married and right. there's just not enough information that, that, to
2: uh, know, conference or right. Whatever,
0: yeah. right. And so it, it's one of those things where I, I agree with you. I think in the, I think definitely still, if someone, you know, if someone commits a rape, if someone, you know, does something like that, there needs to be legal action that happens against them. Right. But I think, like you said, just sitting down with, there's a lot of people who are abusive, who are being accidentally abusive. They're doing learned behaviors. They're doing things that if you sat down with a 15 year old kid and said, Hey, what you see in pornography is not what sex looks like. Or, Hey, if, if you could sit down with a woman and say, Hey, this is where you can set a very clear boundary. um, There's there's just a lot of work that could be done there.
2: Um, One of the interesting things I've had a couple of guys who have over the years when I was doing, I stopped, I haven't, I don't do offender groups anymore, but Uh, when I was doing them for almost 15 years. Um, One of the interesting things, um, maybe it would be a, maybe it's a a prototype. Um, A lot of the guys told me that um, they were were too old for it, but in the schools at some point, I don't know exactly, I can't pinpoint exactly when the bullying curriculum started, Hmm. but they started educating kids in the schools about bullying. And, um, and basic bullying is, um, you know, uh, you're going to be physically assaulted. You might be, uh, verbally assaulted. I mean, they were teaching kids about basic warning signs in an abusive yeah. relationship, but they were teaching it in a, you know, so they were telling me, one guy told me that his teenage daughter came home and said to him, to him, you know, I learned today in school about bullying and you're b- being verbally abusive to my mother, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and It was, it was, you know, we all smiled and laughed and he said, oh my God, but they were getting language, you know, they were giving, they, they were, they started to get language and his daughter was able to articulate in a very clear way to her father, um, you know, what she, what, what was uh, upsetting her. Um, And he said it was a, it was such an incredible message that he like, I got to get my act together, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that's one thing that, it and bullying is kind of, a, I don't even know, cause I don't have any kids and I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but it's kind of in a different context, but that's the language that kids need to know. And um, I think the other thing that I I was always impressed with my offender guys because when I would say to them, you know, um, they would go on about you know their their girlfriend or their mother of their children and how bad the relationship was and you know and but I got to get it back on course and they would always think about it in terms of power and control and what mm. they really wanted to be is loved, you know. And I'm like, you know, if you if you if you continue to have this behavior you know, yeah, she, she, if you do power and control with her, she will probably submit to you because she's not stupid, you know, but she's not going to love you. I mean, what is it that you want here? And I don't think we've had that conversation. Um, and I don't even know how you have it because then it's, it, yeah, it's somewhat about sex, but it's really about how relationships work and, and how, you know, I used to ask my guys, you know, there's a curriculum I did, um, you know, who, who's a role model for you as a, a good father or a good man. And they would look at me like, I don't know, you know, hmm. wasn't their father. wasn't their, maybe their stepfather usually would be somebody, maybe a coach or, yeah. um, or a, um, uh, a teacher at school. And I'd say, you know, so you don't really know what this looks like, do you? And they're like, I guess not, you know, maybe they named somebody on TV or something. Hmm. So, yeah. You know, and sometimes I, you know, when I did the groups with, with another man, we always paired off, um, you know, I'd say to the, particularly it was somebody new who came in to work with me and it's like, I don't know if I can do this. And I don't know what the guys want from me. And I said, I think they need you as a role model. And slowly the guys would come up to him after class and say, you know, I wanted to ask you about this thing, my girlfriend and I, what do you think about, you know, they just yeah. needed some, some kind of, um. Um, expectation that there was somebody out there who could get them through this. And if they didn't have it in their own, in their own backyard, then who do they look for? Mm. Um, And I think that's the kind of education that needs. Now, I don't know if it's like, you know, um, I know that even when I I have done education in particularly in middle schools, I've gone in and, and talked about um, the warning signs um, kids already know this stuff in middle school now, God, yeah. when I was in middle school, I didn't have a clue, <laughs> but, but, um, and they're looking for, you know, well, how do you know somebody likes you? Oh, he, you know, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll sock me in the arm when he walks down the hall. Really? Yeah. Is that how, you know, you know that a man likes you or boy yeah. likes you? So just that real, I don't, you know, I agree. It should be sex education because a lot of that, but even that basic, um, yeah.
0: Basic human you know, interaction.
2: Basic you know. human interaction, and then understanding that some of these kids are coming in. Uh, one of my my brothers is a, was a school teacher, and he said, you know, sometimes I, I I don't even teach about the classroom work. I'm just trying to help them deal with all the stuff that's going on in their house,
0: right. so they
2: can come into school and actually focus. Um, right. So I think that's that's why I keep thinking about it in a public health perspective because it seems to be a bigger context about how. Um, how do healthy relationships work? And, yeah. um, and if you do have a healthy relationship, whether it's with a, um, a sexual partner or with your parents or your kids, how does that work? And how do you teach that? Um, because we don't, we don't, you know, we can't expect that they'll learn that, that they'll have good role models coming through as children. Right. Um, and if, if they don't have those, then where are they going to find them? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think, it, and I agree with you about consent. That's a really, there's been a lot more work on college campuses about yeah. consent. Um, some of it's been helpful. Some of it's been, there's been backlash about it. Um, the religious stuff really gets mixed up, be, mixed in it because there's still a lot of people who believe their religion supports the idea that women should be sublimated. You know, I used to get guys in my groups who would bring out the Bible, bring out the Quran. I mean, they would just quote me stuff and I'm like, oh, we're not going there. You know, Um, that's your belief. I understand it, but that's not what the law says. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Um, And if you, or or I had guys who were in other, came from other countries, particularly very very, uh, restricted in societies and they say, well, I don't understand why my wife won't do this. And, you know, she should do that. And I'm like, well, that's in another country, you know, or another country, you can beat your kids, but you can't beat them here.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: And, and that culture sometimes really gets, a, you know, a, a attached to it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think what we reveal is like, even in this conversation, like there's so much that needs to be done. There's so many avenues to take. And like you said, there's a lot, a lot of it. The fact that we're even having the conversation is great. Um, but like you said, with the college campus thing, um, I, I was just I was just looking at some uh, some information about that and like the the uh, you know all of the different controversy and how to deal with it. What how to label all these different things? How to address each of these different issues? but so much of it is happening for the first time in these last few years. And so there's a lot of messy, messy work being done. A lot of, I think it's important, but it's, it's just messy trying to, trying to work through it. Um, I I do want to, before we, before we wrap, I do want to Mm -hmm. give you a chance to talk about some of the work you've been doing. Um, I think you've been doing the, my avenging angel workshops Mm -hmm. and have been doing great work with, with women who are Um, survivors of abuse. Can you you just talk about that and let people know if they wanted to get connected or or get plugged into that, how they could do so?
2: Sure. So um, my work has been really around that journey from victim to survivor to thriver. So I have devised materials. I have books. there on my website, which is called the Thriver Zone. Uh, I have been working with women, helping them to enter the Thriver Zone, helping them to stay in that Thriver Zone, to begin to move their goals out um, and then to to live in the thriver zone. Um, as I said in the beginning, the idea I got from my niece's murder is that there, that uh, the man who killed her killed himself. He was mm. her he was her ex boyfriend. So I didn't have a chance to avenge it. So I wanted to. I got the quote: "Living well is the best revenge." That's what he didn't he didn't want for my niece, obviously, and he didn't even want for my family or for me personally. Um, so the idea that, um, there is a, there's a journey beyond all of this and, um, trying to bring a part of you that's been untouched by all of it, which is really the the basis of a lot of trauma work. So I have been putting it out there. I've got uh, books out there. I also have uh, free workshops that I do um, through a nonprofit here in Connecticut. I've been doing them on zoom lately, which is so exciting. Right. So I've actually been getting women from other parts of the country. There seems to be a real dearth of information and a real, um, enthusiasm by the women who have gone through crisis intervention programs and have, right. um, um, have gotten great, great services, victim advocacy, victim assistance, but they want to keep moving. And that's really where I've tuned in. So I'm hoping that, you know, we'll keep the movement going and to get this continuum of care to really serve not only women, but also, um, men and, and, and also serve their children, which, uh, to try to break that generational cycle of
0: violence. Right. right. Uh, so awesome.
2: thriverzone.com is my, um, my website and you can get all the information there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, definitely check that out. Just go to thriverzone.com and Susan, thank you so much for all the work you've been doing for, for all this time. I mean, st- you know, starting back with the crisis center now, you know, I mean, you've, you've really been at this fight for, for quite some time and I really appreciate all the, all the effort and time and, and just wisdom that you've you put into this conversation for so long.
2: Well, thank you. Well, thank you for your work. And thank you. As a man, you are a great role model. Keep going.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you.
2: Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you
1: for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on Preacher